So if you've picked up a page of notes there, I've gone with my old uh, way of doing things and not give you too much and let you fill in some gaps, but hopefully uh, sort of um, pave our way as we go. The covenants contained in the Bible not only provide us with a framework with which to understand the scriptures, you can trace the covenants as sort of large blocks throughout scripture and see how they fit together. But they also reveal the very nature of God and his relationship with humanity, especially his chosen covenant people. There is nothing more secure and assuring than being in covenant relationship with God. We are his people and he will be our God. Great covenant anthem. God commits himself to us in covenant relationship. We're going to see that in a couple of weeks. God actually commits himself to us in covenant relationship. And he holds himself responsible for those under his care, for his covenant children. I pray these studies will encourage and comfort us in the sure knowledge of the saving and sanctifying love of our covenant father who has appointed his son Jesus Christ to be the guarantor of a better covenant and has sealed us in that better covenant with the promised Holy Spirit. Just a taster, a little trailer, hopefully to get you, get you interested for the next few weeks. Not that think you'd come anyway maybe I don't know pretty regular aren't you tell me though what covenants do you know of in scriptures you tell me I've done a study but you tell me what you already know and then I don't have to speak everything do I Abrahamic Abrahamic covenant the Noah Noah. Noah. covenant with Noah after the flood Abraham Noah the new covenant, okay, the, the Christ is the guarantor of a better covenant. We read about that in Hebrews and the new covenant spoken of in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and elsewhere. Mosaic covenant, Sinai. So Adam and Eve or covenant with creation. Yeah, there's a little few question marks around that one. We're going to look at that one briefly this morning, but I think it's there. Not quite as explicit as those others. There's one other major one which is really important we haven't said yet. David. Covenant with David. An everlasting kingdom, everlasting throne. So many of those covenants Christ fulfills, doesn't he? We'll see. So there's five or six biblical covenants. Six by my count, if we include a covenant with creation. We've only got five weeks and today's a bit more of an introduction so we're going to have to be creative and work out where I am. How do I double up and overlap or miss? I don't want to miss anything but uh, we might skip through some more quickly but they're all so wonderful and rich. Um, I'll let you know how we're going to go. Okay, so there's those covenants that we could trace through Scripture historically, chronologically and also just in the framework of Scripture. But how would you define covenant? How would you describe a covenant? What is it and what isn't it? I know some of you have done studies in covenant before. I prefer the word promise. You prefer the word promise. So covenant is to do with a promise. I like that. It definitely has promise involved in it. Is it something that stands regardless of what? Okay, something that stands regardless of the outcome. 
Therefore, even if you break a covenant, it still stands. Yeah. Now, some covenants, with God's covenant, that works, but there's also other things that take place. Between someone and us, it is not broken by us misbehaving. Okay, so it's between someone and us, God and us. The covenant is not broken, it's not, um, it's, it's not demolished by us breaking it. There might be consequences, there are consequences, but the covenant itself still remains. Would you say that is permanent? So it's permanent, that's, a good, that's the word we're looking for. It's permanent. Mm, most of them are permanent. Not all of them. Anything else? I've already mentioned the word in that praise. I think covenant is, has a lot to do with relationship. Yes, it's promise, it's an agreement, it's something that's, but it's relational. It's between people or between God and a nation and God and his children. Covenant is relational. And there's promise and with that promise also comes, and we might not always like to speak about this, but it is there, we can't ignore it, there is obligation within that covenant. So that's just some introductory thoughts and a couple of questions to get you the grey matter working. Daniel Block, who's a commentator, and he's written a book on covenant. And just in the title, he um, he calls his his book the framework. This is his whole book is on covenant, the framework of God's plan of redemption. So he's looking at covenant, and he sees it as a framework, a scaffolding for God's plan, grand plan of redemption. I don't think that's a bad way of looking at things, the way we trace the biblical covenants. They do give us a wonderful framework or structure with which to see salvation history played out in the scriptures. And yet I would want to add to that, it's more than a framework, isn't it? It has to do with the very word of God and when God speaks, he acts, so it's the action of God, promises of God, and it has to do with those he's making covenant with. It has to do with relationship. A covenant is that. It is a framework. It is a structure, but it's more than that. Otherwise, it's just a sort of object. It's just a scaffolding. There's no meat and bones to it. There's no relational. I think it's covenant is deeply relational. And relational in the way that it reveals to us the very the way or the manner that God himself reveals himself to us and relates to us. It's through covenant that God makes himself known and it's through covenant that he relates to us as his people, as his own family. So I want to bring that home. I want to, yes, it's a good framework. It gives us some good structure. It's actually essential. <laughs> knowing the covenants, I think, is essential for knowing the scriptures and how they fit together, the story of God and how to understand that. But it's also essential, Jeff Bingham reminds us in his little book, you know, the Comprehending Series? You might have a few of them on your shelves, Comprehending the Covenant. Jeff says, covenant is essential for knowing God, for knowing the nature of God and his relationship with humanity, those made in his image. For example, in the promise of the new covenant that we read in Jeremiah 31, we read this. No longer, he's going to make a new covenant, he's going to give us a new heart. No longer shall each one teach his neighbour and each his brother, saying, know the Lord, as in it's got to be handed down. No, they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. How is it we're going to know him? 
for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. So this is the words of the new covenant. This is the promise of the new covenant. God's going to make himself known to us through the cross, through forgiveness, through remembering our sins no more. So covenant has to do with knowing God. It has to do with redemption. And the new covenant obviously has to do with the cross. But even the covenant with Moses on Sinai, when God revealed himself to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving wickedness. How, how was it they got to know God? Through his word proclaimed to Moses there, and it was all to do with his character, his mercy, his love, his forgiveness. Deeply relational, but also deeply redemptive when we come to the theme of covenant. It's no theory. This is not just a theoretical notion or idea. By its very nature and definition, covenant has to do with the very promise of God, the Lord God who is faithful and able to do all that he's promised. We could throw the word promise around all we want, but unless you're faithful to what you've promised, it doesn't stand, does it? We know God is both faithful and able to fulfil all that he's promised. And that's why this is where our hope and confidence lie as believers. In God himself, and in his covenant word to us, promised and revealed in Christ, fulfilled in him, and applied to us by the Spirit. For me personally, as, particularly as I've studied this, but over the years as well, and prepared for the series, the very notion, the very reality of covenant, I think is one of the most assuring aspects of the Gospel and of the Scriptures. That God would commit himself to us, that he makes promises to us that he will not break no matter how we respond. And my hope and prayer for us, as I said at the beginning, is that as we study these covenants over the next five weeks, is that they might become the same for us, assuring, confident, settling, assuring in our faith, if they're not already. Taking the words of God himself in that great covenant anthem, which appears a number of times in Scripture, Exodus 6, Jeremiah 7, 11, 30 and Ezekiel, um, I've titled the studies, not just Covenant, but Covenant, I will be your God. That's the great promise, the great anthem of Scripture, of the covenants. I will be your God. Now, for some that might sound threatening, but when you learn about the nature and character of God, it's not threatening at all, is it? He's holy, yes, but abounding in love, forgiveness, mercy and grace. I will be your God. It's one of the most wonderful things we could ever hear and sit under. How wonderful it would have been for Moses or Jeremiah or Ezekiel to hear those words and declare them to God's people. You bunch of rat bags, whatever you've done, I will be your God. That's what he says to us, sinners that we are. And not just I will be your God, I'll be your father. I will bind myself to you in covenant word and covenant love. And Jesus says, none will snatch you from our hands. Pretty wonderful, isn't it? No small theme that we're looking at. Before we look a little bit more at covenant in the scriptures, um, it's helpful for us to know the scriptures weren't written in a vacuum. 
there was history taking place, there was culture, there was language, there was tradition, a whole lot of things going on. Um, this is not inspired scripture I'm about to read to you, but I want you to get a feel for covenant that was happening outside of scripture as well. I've read about Nahash already. Have a listen to this one. These are the words of the son, S-U-N, it's his name, not the son, but the son, Mercilus, the great king, the king of the Hattie land and valiant, the favourite of the storm god, the son of Supalulimus, the great king, the king of Hattie land, the valiant. That's what we call a preamble. This is who the covenant's coming from. And then there's an introduction. Azarus was the grandfather of you, Dupi Tuseb. He rebelled against my father, but submitted again to my father. When the kings of Nahasiland and the kings of Kinza rebelled against my father, Azarus did not rebel, as he was bound by treaty. He remained bound by treaty. As my father fought against his enemies, in the same manner fought Azarus. And Azarus remained loyal toward my father and did not incite my father's anger. History. And now what's to happen because of that? When I, the son, sought after you in accordance with your father's word and put you in your father's place, I took you in oath for the king of the Hattie land, the Hattie land, and for my sons and grandsons. So honour the oath of loyalty to the king and the king's king, and I, the king, will be loyal towards you. So as a history, this is who I am. This is, a, this is our history between two nations, two countries, two tribes. And now this is how it's going to work out from here on in. You be loyal to me, you honour that oath, and I will be loyal to you. How does that loyalty work out? With my friend, you shall be friend. With my enemy, you shall be enemy. If then you, Dupi Tesub, do not remain loyal together with your foot soldiers and your charioteers, and if you do not fight wholeheartedly, you act in disregard of your oath. Skipping out a few bits because it goes on and on. If any one of the deportees from the Nuhasi land, if you do not seize him and turn him back to the king of the Hattie land, you act in disregard of your oath. So there's these stipulations that are taking place. If anyone utters words unfriendly to the king of the Hattie land before you, Dupi Tesub, you shall not withhold his name from the king. So there's a loyalty here, there's an agreement and you have to actually be on the same page. And then you need witnesses if you're going to make an agreement, don't you? Who do they ask for witnesses? They inv- uh, there's an invocation of the gods. The sun god of heaven, the sun goddess of Arena, the whole pantheon, and it goes on and on. There's over 50 gods mentioned. It goes on for about this much in the text. I won't mention them all but including Anu and Antu and Apantu and Elil and Nilil, the mountains, the rivers, the springs, the great sea, the heaven and earth, the winds of... All these gods, let these be witnesses to this treaty and to this oath. And then there's some curses and blessings. What happens if you break this oath? The words of the treaty and the oath that are inscribed on this tablet, they write it down, should Depu Dupi Tesed not honour these words of the treaty and the oath, may these gods of the oath destroy Dupu Tesed together with his person, his wife, his son, his grandson, his house, his land, and together with everything that he owns. Pretty good incentive to keep the oath, isn't it? But if Dupi Tesed honours these words of the treaty and the oath that are inscribed on this tablet, May these gods of the oath protect him together with his person, his wife, his son, his grandson, his house and his country. Now that's an example of a covenant. Not a biblical one, 
It's what we call a suzerain vassal treaty between the Hittite king of Mercilus and Dupi Tesub of Amaru, about the 16th, 17th century BC. The reason I read that to you is <coughs> there's a formula there and there's words and aspects of that which between two kings, two nations, which are very similar to some of the formula we find in scripture with the covenants there. And therefore what we read and what we learn as we look at covenant in scripture, we actually realise that that comes into the context, a historical context in the culture of the ancient Near East. Using language and images and even cultural practices of the times. Now whether those images and practices and, and um, treaty formula actually came from God making promises or the other way around, it's worth noting that what happens is God makes promise with Abraham <coughs> and with the nation of Israel and that's happening in the context of other nations, other people where there's already some of these promises taking place before any scripture was written down. Now I do think all that's taking place there on the human level is an expression actually of we are God's image bearers, aren't we, whether we know it or not. So what they're doing is actually putting into practice things that are already innate in our humanity. But they're doing it without little mention of God, or at least Yahweh God, and many other gods that they believe are there. But it's interesting to note that Israel are not the only people that come under covenant, or that even consider the idea of covenant and treaty, of promise and agreement. God speaks to us, doesn't he, as his people, but he speaks to us in a language and a way and a culture that we're already aware of. That's really helpful. It's really kind of God to speak to us in that way. But as he does, he reveals himself as the God of all gods, the king of all kings, one who's far above any language, culture, tribe or nation. But it's worth knowing that there's already a background, an understanding of covenant within the people's minds and lives when God makes his covenant with Moses, with Abraham, with David. That will help us in our understanding of covenant if we're patient enough to do that little bit of research, just by way of introduction. Michael Horton, who's a, a theologian and commentator, in his introduction of a book on covenant theology regarding a covenant like that, regarding the suzerain vassal treaties, Suzerain, I'll, I'll explain in a minute. He's that the suzerain is the, the king, the, the stronger, larger entity within the covenant agreement. The vassal is the weaker one. A bit like when Nahash said to Jabesh Gilead, Nahash is the suzerain, and Jabesh is there saying, well, hang on, give us a moment, let us think about this. If we have to submit to you, we will. Otherwise, we'll see if someone else can come and fight for us. So there's a power play at work in one sense there. It's not always a power play, though. But Horton says, before a single word of the Bible was penned, the ancient Near East already had in place a secular version of the covenant in its form, in the form of its suzerain vassal treaties. Okay? Not before biblical history began, but before the Bible was written, before scriptures were penned, written down. Those treaties date back, as I said, in the second millennium BC. The suzerain, as I said, is a great king or emperor like Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon or Tiglath-Pileser, who conquered Israel in 722 from Assyria. So the suzerain is the powerful entity of a treaty, and the vassal is what we call the client state, the weaker entity, sometimes taken by force. If they were taken by force and they weren't all annihilated, they'd have to come and submit themselves. They'd have to serve the victor, the winning nation, 
the more powerful nation and therefore they're an obligation to them by force. But then there's also other times when they say, look, would you please help us? And so, yep, and that great ruler says, yes, we will, but as a result, you're an obligation to me. We need to serve you because you rescued us. So it's not always by force. Sometimes it's, well, it's by mutual agreement. Um, and you, you'd know that if you know the history with Israel and Judah. As I said, Assyria come down to Israel and they say, Judah, come and help us. And Judah says, no, no. And God says, you shouldn't do this, do that. Don't look to Egypt, don't look to other nations. And then Judah was tempted to do the same sort of stuff. And we know a lot of that came undone because they sought the help of other nations rather than trusting in the Lord God to save them. It's all in the context of making treaties with other kings, looking for a large empire, a larger leader, a larger army to defeat the nations that are against them. And so the smaller towns, the weaker vassal, they would actually come under the responsibility, not under the obliga- only the obligation, but they'd actually come under the responsibility of the suzerain. They're responsible for them. However well or not, they looked after those people. <clears throat> but the vassal would have certain obligations placed upon them. And as we've already heard, some of those treaties were very generous, very kind, very benevolent. Others were less so. We would say they were malevolent, not benevolent like Nahash. Yes, I'll make a treaty with you, but I'm going to take out all your right eyes first. Let me gouge them out, then I'll make a promise with you. Then I'll be responsible for you if I have to. He was known, Nahash was known and feared for his very ruthless ways. He was actually known for gouging out the the right eyes of his enemies. Not a great choice to be faced with. Surrender or else. If you're going to fight, you might die anyway. Um, But... Not all treaties, not all suzerains were that ruthless or violent. Something we often don't recognise is that in the more amicable treaties, there was actually involved some of the deepest affections. The suzerain king was often seen as their protector, as their father. Michael Horton again explains this. He says, the great king, the suzerain, was the father adopting the captives that he had liberated from oppression. Consequently, he was not simply to be obeyed. This is the covenant I've saved you, therefore you must do this. But he was their father to be loved. Not only feared, but revered. Not only known as the legal lord of the realm, but acknowledged openly as the rightful sovereign. Sound familiar? Now he's talking about human treaties, interactions, suzerain vassal treaties. But can you see what's actually taking place when we apply that and see, we've actually seen it in the covenants that God makes with Israel? He's not just the forceful Lord who says, I've rescued you, therefore you're going to serve me forever by fear. No, there's this love and there's responsibility and care. Not just fear, but reverence. Not just a legal lordship, but a rightful sovereign who we trust. So there were, of course, some good suzerain kings and there were some not so good ones, there were some bad ones. But I hope I've at least um, expressed that the notion of covenant treaties were well and truly present in the time uh, that we read the scriptures of in the scriptures. And within those treaties, as I sort of mentioned when I went through that larger covenant between those two Hittite um, kings and nations, uh, there was notable characteristic and formula. There was always the preamble, 
Thus saith the king of such and such, the great king son of such and such, identifying the one making the treaty. There was a historical prologue telling of the story, the rescue, the what's happened and why this promise is being made. Can you remember how the Ten Commandments begin? I am the Lord your God. There's the preamble. What did he do? Brought you out of the land of slavery. There's the history. Therefore, here's the stipulations. So the formula is right there. The stipulations, the terms of the treaty, you shall, you shall not. These were the terms. They were um, kept with the covenant keepers and those who didn't were covenant breakers. And then there were the appeal to witnesses, to the the gods. Who's God going to appeal to as a witness? He makes a promise and an oath. And then there's sanctions, the consequences for covenant breakers. Here's the blessings for obedience. Here's the curses for disobedience. And that's where we get this idea of, well, hang on, we might break the covenant, we might disobey, we might not fulfil our side of the obligation. And yet the fact that God curses is not him breaking the covenant, it's actually him fulfilling the covenant. He's following through with what he's promised. If you do this, there'll be blessing. If you don't, there'll be curse. And there was often the deposit of treaty tables. Things were written down. Historic. It's made, it's, it's sealed. And Moses comes down the mountain, doesn't he? With two tablets. Which we just think of the Ten Commandments. We forget, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery. That's the beginning of it all. Redemption. And there is also, and was in the culture of the ancient Near East, and in these Hittite suzerain vassal treaties, there was a public ceremony that was often enacted. And guess what happened? You might already know. Two parties who were making this covenant agreement together would pass between two halves of slaughtered animals. We get a picture of that in scripture, don't we, with Abraham. It wasn't the first time that happened, although it was the first time it was done the way it was, <laughs> I promise you that. But the two kings or the two leaders would pass between these slaughtered animals as if to say, may the same fate befall on me should I fail to keep this covenant. And that's where we note a very striking and significant difference with these human suzerain vassal treaties of the ancient Near East and some of the covenants that God makes with his people. There's a lot of similarities and it's helpful to have that background and history but we also need to see where the differences are as well. And that covenant God makes with Abraham in Genesis 15 that we'll see, if not next week, the week after, still to make that decision. Um, Horton says this, Scholars of ancient Near Eastern texts see in Genesis 15 a classic example of what we call a royal grant as opposed to a suzerain treaty. So the treaty is where there's two parties making an agreement. There's one who's strong and one who's weak, but they are making a mutual agreement. But then there's also this idea of a royal grant where the the king, the, the stronger entity, actually makes promises without any obligation. And so that's what we see in Genesis 15. Royal grants, he said, were an outright gift by a king to a subject. Just a gift. A typical brief example runs as this. Here's a historic example, if I can get the names right. From this day forward, Nikmadu, son of Amistramu, king of Ugarit, has taken the house of Pabia, which is in Yulami, 
and given it to Nuriani and to his descendants forever. Let no one take it from the hand of Nuriani or his descendants forever. Seal of the king. That's just a promise. It's just a gift. There's a royal grant given by the king. No conditions, no obligation, just a promise, a royal grant. But there are no ancient Near Eastern equivalents of the self-maledictory oath, that is, of the king calling down curses upon himself within a royal grant. As in, if I break my promise, let it be to me. It's as if from the divine side, Horton says, the covenant made with Abraham, we'll look at this in detail in a week or two, is a suzerain treaty in which God swears unilaterally, that is himself alone, to personally perform all the conditions and suffer all the consequences, all the curses for its violation. Because Abraham doesn't walk between them. But from the human side, that same covenant is a royal ground. It's just all promise. An inheritance bestowed freely and in utter graciousness on the basis of the great king's performance. So there's this mix of great promise and yet he goes through the covenant ceremony which makes it as if, hang on, if, if one of us breaks this, each whoever has broken it. But that doesn't happen with Abraham. Only God walks through with a smoking pot and a flaming torch. So we'll look at the astonishing significance of that in more detail when we come to God's covenant with Abraham. But that raises another matter which we didn't get to when we, I said what is covenant and what isn't it. Um, I quote Jeff again just because he makes it very clear. For those who see every covenant as contractual, then God is not a covenanting God but a contracting deity. See, one thing covenant is not is a contract. We did talk about the permanency. If you break this, then the covenant still remains. If I go buy a car and I give the person money, but they don't give me a car, <laughs> they've broken the contract, haven't they? And I can, should be able to get my money back. If, they, if, if I get the car but don't give them money, the car's technically still theirs. They should be able to, according to the, the contract. The covenant's not like that. This is not the biblical idea of covenant, the contract, although doubtless it is an idea of fallen human beings. Covenant is not contractual. And yet, it certainly has obligation in it. But this is the obligation of love and gratitude, the obligation that love and gratitude always feel without thinking of a contract. Really important. And not something we always, in our human fallenness and sinfulness and guilt, I think, easily come to terms with. Those of us who know the grace of God and all the gift of God, the royal grant, of Christ to us did not spare his own son but gave him up for us we still get caught up in the thing of thinking we actually have to earn God's favour don't we and when we sin again we've blown it we're going to make up for it but Christ has covered it all it's not contractual our relationship with God is not contractual it's covenantal Hopefully we'll learn that and just become more and more immersed in it over the coming weeks. Now there are some details and there's nuance in the distinction between covenant and contract which, and the obligation side of things that we'll look at in coming weeks. 
Not all the biblical covenants are actually the same when it comes to some of that. Just to finish this introductory section, we're going to look briefly at the creational covenant. Let me quote from Horton again. One of the running themes in the Bible is that the nations and their armies, their kings and their gods, their chariots and their ivory palaces cannot save. In fact, in truth, they are assembled against the Lord and his anointed. Psalm 2. Israel was not first of all a nation, but a church, in the sense that it was a community called out of darkness, sin and oppression and evil, called out to form the nucleus of God's worldwide empire, his kingdom. Not only the politics but the religion was anchored in historical events that gave rise to faith that this covenant Lord would be faithful to his promises. Can you remember in Deuteronomy 4, I think it is, when God says to his people the second time when Moses uh, repeats the law to them and the reason they're given the law, one of the reasons is so that the nations would hear about it and they'd see how Israel relate with God and God with Israel and the nations would look upon them and say, what kind of gracious God would rule a people like this? So even God's covenant, even as the law came to Israel, it was to be a witness to the nations of God's benevolence, of his grace, that he would be faithful to his promises. And so there was a basis for confidence. The future was not indeterminate, left a chance. It's talking about Israel, but you know that's also about us. Your future is not left a chance. He knows our days. He knows the numbers of them. He knows a word on our mouth before it even comes out of our lips. The future was not indeterminate, left to chance, or the caprice of the stars, the gods, the demons, or natural forces. The future is in the hands of a good God who had condescended to take his people into covenant. They knew that if they called on the name of this covenant Lord, they would be saved from their enemies. They knew this because the Lord had heard their groaning in Egypt and in Babylon and finally answered the cry of his people in the birth of the one who would save them from their sins. That's why I think covenant is so assuring and so comforting because we know that the God, the Lord, who we call Father, When we cry out to him, he hears us, has mercy on us. There's a throne of grace that we come to, to find help and mercy in our time of need. Now, just to finish this morning briefly, the creational covenant, um, and then we'll try to do five of them in four weeks following today. Historically, some call the the covenant with creation uh, a covenant of works, That can be a little bit confusing, uh, maybe unhelpful, especially when we have a New Testament understanding of the gift of righteousness apart from works. Uh, I think perhaps better, a few other commentators prefer to call it a covenant of life, uh, as it was the life and of blessing and prosperity, even mortality, that was uh, promised or up for grabs, so to speak, through humanity's obedience, uh, which would include partaking in the generous provision of all that's in the garden, including the tree of life, 
but restraining oneself from the single prohibition of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, I don't want to explore this in too much depth and detail. As I said, we've only got five studies and six covenants, to, or five, yeah, five studies and six covenants. And the covenant with creation is probably more implied than it is explicit. I think there's enough there to warrant at least the existence of it, but there's not the full preamble and the formulas that we've sort of seen, and there's not this actual event of this covenant that, uh, that we can say, here it is. But I think there's enough there to warrant a bit of investigation and to say that it existed. It's definitely clear, isn't it, that God made himself or put himself in special relationship with humanity when he created us. We see that in Genesis 1 and especially Genesis 2. Genesis 1 is all about the order um, and, what God, and the sovereignty of God and the power of God, just the word and day one, day two. Genesis 2 is all about the relation, the relating within that order, male and female, God the, and the authority that takes place and the love and the, the gift and the, the um, provision of man and woman together, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And that relationship is all to do with blessing. Covenant with God often begins with blessings. We've just been doing a series or in Matthew up the hill and we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount, which some people say, you know, here's Jesus' interpretation of the law and it is that to a degree. But how does the Sermon on the Mount start? It starts with the Beatitudes, with blessing. God's kingdom people, his covenant children are blessed people before anything else. What's the first thing we read in creation with humanity? God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Did you know your life in Christ begins with blessing first and foremost? So there's blessing. But as we find in Genesis 3, they're not stipulated beforehand, but there are curses for disobedience, aren't there? Cursed is the ground, cursed is the serpent. Woman with increased pain and the tension that's going to be there in life. So there's blessings and there's curses, very much parts of covenant with creation. There were two trees in the garden, one amounting to life, the other one to death. Just as in later covenants in scripture, there are two mountains and there's two choices. Choose life, I put before you. Blessing and curse, life and death, choose life, says God. There's covenant language everywhere in Genesis 1, 2 and 3. As we'll see next week, there's also evidence when God makes a covenant with Noah after the flood. You might know that what he says there is very similar to what he actually said to Adam and Eve. He blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Now there's some changes and nuances after the flood. But there's a lot of similarities and uh, those who know the Hebrew and there's some studies, a fellow called William Dumbrell from Sydney and others have worked out, well, hang on, what, Jesus, uh, what God says in um, Genesis 9 there to Noah is that he's not initiating a covenant. He's establishing a covenant that's already been in place with creation. Hence the repeat of this blessing and the be fruitful and multiply. So that's just a little bit more evidence that there is something happening back at creation that's not quite explicit but there's some links to it and hints um, further on. Uh, Hosea 6. Seems to be weird to jump from Genesis to Hosea 6, one of the minor prophets, but it's one of the go-to passages in support for God having a covenant with Adam at creation. In Hosea 6, verses 4 to 7, we read this. 
typical um, prophetic language. God's, so what am I going to do with you, Ephraim? I loved you so much and look what you've done. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. It's there one minute, it's not there the next. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I've slain them by the words of my mouth and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So that's all to do with the covenant that Israel's under, the Moses Mosaic covenant. But then he says, but like Adam, Ephraim, Judah, like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. So he's talking about Judah, but he's saying they've broken the covenant just like Adam did. So there must have been a covenant back there for Adam to break, even if it's not stipulated exactly what that covenant is. Now, many commentators regard Adam in that verse to be a place and not the primal man. Adam was a place. Um, it also is, you know, what does Adam mean? It's the earth. Yeah, that's right. It's created from the dust, from the earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Uh, one, one translator actually says, but look, they have walked, Judah, have walked on my covenant like it was dirt. You've treated me like dirt. So depending on where you land with that, I think there's still enough evidence to think with or without Hosea 6, uh, there's a covenant back there at creation. Uh, one other reference is Isaiah 24. Behold, the Lord will make empty the earth and make it desolate and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be as with a people, so with a priest, as with a slave, so with his master, as with a maid, so with her mistress, as with a buyer, so with a seller, as with a lender, so with a borrower, as with a creditor, so with a debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken his word. Sounds like an undoing of creation, doesn't it? The earth mourns and withers, the world languishes and withers, the highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the Lord's, violated the statues, broken the everlasting covenant. Everlasting covenant. Therefore a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are scorched and few men are left. As I said, that's the warning or a picture of almost a reversal of creation due to God's people or the whole earth breaking the everlasting covenant. So as I said, I think there's enough there to say, yes, there's a, God, a covenant that God has with creation. I think God's very nature is covenantal and therefore that he creates as a God who is love. There is a covenant there, there is a promise as his word brings creation into being. Um, and some argue how that works out. And again, is it a covenant of works? That is, you know, Abraham was there, but he wasn't, made, he wasn't righteous, he wasn't proved righteous yet. He had to obey God. And if he didn't, then there'd be the curse. And that's why they call it a covenant of works. But I think we can get a bit confused with that, as I said, with grace and works. Uh, I see it as a covenant of life. They're brought into being. Um, does it really matter whether there is a covenant with creation or not? I think it does. Because I think it establishes God, a creator God, redeemer God, as a God of covenant. 
from the very beginning. It's not an afterthought. He is a God who loves, a God who is love, a God who provides and blesses, who initiates that. Not because he's obliged to, but out of his very nature, built into creation and innate in the very character of God. He cannot act otherwise outside of covenant. And whilst we're no longer in the garden, as the primal couple were, God has promised to restore all things, hasn't he? He has committed himself to renew the heavens and the earth. He's put himself under obligation to bring all things to their intended goal and glory. Covenant language. Covenant action. He didn't need to do that. But in his covenant love and faithfulness, he has bound himself to that end, which is where our security and comfort lies in his covenant faithfulness. I'll leave it there. Let me pray. Father God, today has been very much introductory and as we open up your word um, further in the coming weeks, we pray that some of these things that you will just reveal are not just words and ideas to us, but your very nature your very love and faithfulness. I pray that's already come through today. And Father, that you speak with us and meet us where we are in our own day, in our own land and own culture, but you transcend all of that. And your love cuts through all of that. And your covenant faithfulness is something so unlike anything we ever could know but we do know it because you've revealed yourself to us in your word through history and now in your son and by your spirit we know you to be not just a covenant Lord and God but our covenant father who loves us and who has bound himself to us in covenant love and faithfulness. And so, Lord, where else would we want to go? Where else would we want to turn? Where else do we find hope and comfort and security? Where there is so little else in life that is so sure. The world's not as faithful as that. The world offers empty promises that you promise us fullness in Christ and in the filling of your spirit in each and every one of your children. So Father, we pray in the coming weeks you would bless us as we've said. This all begins with blessing and it's by your blessing that we're sustained too and that you take us through to the very goal you have destined us for. And so we go with confidence, but also knowing that we are weak and needy and need all your help and grace day by day. We again just pray for Les and Ruth this day and ask you to uphold them. Bring them through, Father, we pray, with successful surgery and with good heart too, knowing your presence and your comfort, and we pray your healing hand upon Les at this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.